Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. My name is Jenna and I'm here to help you do all the hard things. I'm a licensed professional counselor with nearly 10 years of clinical and research experience working with people who have some of the most debilitating OCD and anxiety in the world. I'm also a mom, a personal trainer, and a lover of modern spirituality. My goal is to bring you all the research, guidance, and encouragement you need to help you remember and know how strong you truly are. Now let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of All the Hard Things where we are going to wrap up our discussion about what does not work for OCD treatment. So again, this is part three. So if this is your first time landing on this episode um, and you haven't listened to the previous two, you're going to want to go ahead and stop this right now and then head back to episode 86 and then 87 um, for just a more thorough rundown and kind of some basic context for what we're talking about. So where we left off in the previous episode, we were talking about um, benzodiazepines, kind of those as-needed medications um, that people take, not not the medications that you take every day, like that are prescribed every single day, like sertraline, fluoxetine, such Um, medications like that, but we're talking about those medications that you're feeling really anxious and you take, you know, you take one of those pills um, on all the reasons why that's not good. We also talked about some other questionable interventions for OCD, like replacing good thoughts with bad thoughts or vice versa. Um, And, you know, trying to understand why, trying to put too much emphasis on upbringing, childhood history, so on and so forth. So we're going to launch today into discussing some mistakes that therapists make um, because we're human too, um, especially when it comes to exposure and response prevention. Um, we are kind of a different breed. We, you know, I, I think back on all of the very, very beginner level training that I got as a therapist and it kind of conflicts with some of the things that I've learned in my specialization of exposure and response prevention, right? So, um, kind of like always having to be warm and kind and, you know, all of these things just kind of, you know, giving your, your patient time to explain themselves. And it's like, obviously that's at the core of so much of what we do. Um, We as exposure and response prevention therapists, we want to be warm. We want to, you know, you know, obviously be able to have that rapport and, and that's so important, but with what we do in particular, we are having you guys face your worst fears every single day. And it's not like a soft and fuzzy and cuddly kind of treatment, right? Like it's very possible that when you uh, get ready for the session, you're going to be nervous for it with that anticipatory anxiety. Possible that throughout the session, you're also going to not feel so great. And it's possible that by the end of the session, you also don't feel great, right? So I think so many times therapists are really latched onto this feeling and this, uh, you know, training that they've been given that it's our job to help them cope. And, um, 
you know, in the moment, we need to do whatever we can to make them feel better. We don't want to have anybody leave a session feeling worse than when they came in. And it's like, I don't know, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fine line. It's definitely as an ERP therapist, you are walking a tightrope of how do I maintain rapport with this person? How do I get this person on my side? Right? Because you're, as the therapist, you're making this alternate argument that, all of their compulsions are not helpful. Um, you're leading them in the direction of their worst fear. And it's you have to maintain that rapport with them. You have to be believable in your approach. And you also can't be too soft because you have to be firm. You also have to set some standards and set some boundaries. Like, I'm not going to answer those reassurance questions anymore. So definitely a tightrope. Um, that we have to walk. So there are lots of mistakes that potentially therapists can make. And as we go through this, especially if you're starting out as a therapist or if you're just starting out in therapy, don't freak out if this is something that you do. Like looking back on all of these things that I'm about to uh, encourage, right? Like these are all these are all mistakes that I made when I was pretty fresh in my specialization of OCD. So, this is why I'm doing this so that you all can, um, <clears throat> you know, learn so that you all can feel more confident. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it, this is why we're here. So mistakes that therapists make. First and foremost, I think it's really detrimental when therapists have the wrong demeanor during exposure and response prevention. So um, I think it's really easy sometimes as a therapist, especially when you're not totally sure of your approach or you're just starting out doing exposure therapy, it's totally expected and very common and normal to feel nervous or scared or even timid, especially during your first rounds of exposures. I remember the first exposure I ever did um, that I like was in control of that I was actually not just observing, but I was doing with someone. Someone had some magical thinking about like water and pipes and like if someone was close by I don't know. I don't know exactly what it was, but essentially their exposure was to flush the toilet and just allow themselves to be anxious, like that maybe something bad happened, so on and so forth. Um, and I was kind of scared, right? Like I didn't know what was going to happen after. I didn't know if this was going to be too anxiety provoking for the person. Um, I didn't know if I would mess up. I, I just felt like I was kind of walking on eggshells a little bit. And I definitely contributed to probably not the best experience, right? Because people will feed off of that. So I think it's as a therapist, modeling is really important. Um, you want to be firm, but also validating. So you want to, as a therapist who's doing exposure therapy, you really want to be calm, cool, and confident as much as possible. And totally, if you don't feel that way authentically, if you are nervous, that's okay. But you have to make it so that you don't look that way. Um, you know, I'm I'm okay with a little bit of genuineness, right? Like this, this is anxiety provoking. I'm doing it with you. I'm doing this exposure with you, and I'm still here. I'm I'm gonna do it with you. Like, yeah, I feel that anxiety, and I'm still gonna do it. We're 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 doing this together right now. I'm still gonna do it. So, I'm not saying like be a robot and never show your emotions. I think that tactfully, if if done, then it can be really useful, but you you don't want to tiptoe too much and give them the wrong idea because if you're scared of something, they're going to be scared of something. Um, I think of this as no different from like when a child falls, right? 
you as the parent kind of have that experience of, oh my gosh, like it sounds like it's a bad fall. Um, and everything in you kind of wants to over-dramatize it. You want to rush to their uh, help and you want to, you know, pick them back up and ask them, are you okay, honey? Are you okay? Um, but if and when you do that, you contribute to a really emotional experience. And that modeling kind of gives the kid the impression, well, my mom or my dad is really upset, so something must be wrong here. Um, so we, as much as on the inside, it might be crying and like devastating for us and so anxiety provoking for us to be taking these people through their first exposures. It's a really unique opportunity to do that. Um, we really want to make sure that we have that modeling in place. Another mistake that therapists make is not encouraging lifestyle exposures. So, you know, it's not enough to just do exposure therapy in session, like with your therapist to do the assigned exposures. Um, definitely not enough to do it in session and not bring that with you outside of the therapy session. But it's also important to not just do the exposures that you give your you know, that you've been given by your therapist. So yes, you have to practice outside of the therapy session. And you also have to do exposures kind of situationally and, and practice these skills outside of the prescription, so to speak, that your therapist has given you. So by not taking the, these skills into your everyday life, um, you're, you're not making it into a lifestyle. You're really not getting into the nitty gritty of what this stuff is about. Um, and it's really important, you know, we don't we don't want to just do what your therapist tells you when your therapist tells you to do it. Um, I don't have the research to support it, but I heard at the International OCD Conference uh, this year in 2021 that 80 to 90 percent of a person's OCD recovery comes down to the work that they did and how consistently they did it outside of the time with their therapist. So you'll be able to make so many more gains and so much more sustainable gains if you take that work with you outside of session. It's also important as a therapist to kind of fade out, or I like to call it kind of like releasing the reins to your clients or to your members, um, kind of as they gain confidence, um, as they, as you start to kind of trust them a little bit, it's kind of like riding a bike. Um, you obviously want to provide them with a lot of feedback and guidance and support in the moment, doing exposures with them, providing a lot of that education. But when they got it and you feel like they kind of get it, I would 100% start to give your, you know, your client more agency and more control over to them. So asking them questions like, what exposures do you think you're ready to cross off? Or what triggers did you notice in that situation? Or, you know, looking back or moving forward, right? Like, what's your plan when it comes to reducing this ritual? And I would continually and, and gradually kind of work away at that and just release the reins on an ongoing basis to give them more control, give them more agency. And eventually we want them to be their own therapist, right? We want them to be able to evaluate anxiety-provoking situations and experiences the way that we would with them. Um, I remember when I was working at the residential unit at Rogers, um, obviously it was a like 45 to 60 day long experience for those individuals. And it was the highest level of care almost that you could get. Um, so it was really debilitating cases of OCD and they were really severe. But my goal for the person before they discharged was to have them have a week where they didn't need me, 
where they literally like they were given their hierarchy. They were allowed to make whatever decisions they made as far as, you know, when to cross off exposures and move on to something more difficult, what those exposures were um, when they moved on to new things. And of course, I would be there to kind of check in with them. And I was always there when they needed me. Um, They always knew where to find me. But that was a really good test to um, whether and, and to what extent they'd be able to do this on their own in a less controlled environment. And it really gives them a lot of confidence if and when they're able to do that. Um, And I think we would all agree that when we pick, when we have a say in the things that we have to do, like chores or exposures or anything like that, we're more likely to be adherent to that. That totally makes sense. And along the lines of preparing for discharge and more independence, therapists sometimes make the mistake of not reviewing relapse prevention and not doing any future planning with the person. So before someone discharges, it's really important to go into detail about kind of you know, when these lapses happen, how do we make sure that it doesn't turn into a full-blown relapse? Um, What are the signs that you're doing well? What are the signs that you're kind of um, starting to slip a little bit, but things aren't going terrible? And what are the signs that you are like maybe potentially even back to square one? And along with all of that, what's your plan? This is what you do. This is what you follow. Who are your social supports? You know, recovery isn't linear. Really just going over that whole spiel, which I'm sure so many of you are uh, fam- somewhat familiar with, right? Like that things are going to happen um, and and all of that. So I think it's really important, but sometimes forgotten um, to go over that really important relapse prevention and future planning piece. It's also really important for therapists to supervise some exposures. So I would encourage, especially in someone's beginning experiences with treatment, I don't want to just teach them how to do exposures and assign exposures and then have them tell me how it went. I think it's really important to not just take their word for it for, you know, one, I want to make sure that they're not not doing the exposure. I want to make sure that they're not just telling me they are. Two, I think what's much more likely is I don't want them to be doing rituals that they aren't aware of or that they can't communicate. So can't tell you guys how many times I did exposures with someone thinking that they totally got it, that this would be a slam dunk, no worry. But the entire time they were fidgeting and they were maybe pacing or doing some other really subtle, um, otherwise, you know, very just go under the radar, right? So it's really important to supervise some of those exposures until you really truly feel like they get the ins and outs of this treatment. You also, as a therapist, don't want to make exposures too high in anxiety ratings or too low. So you want them to be what we call challenging but manageable. So whatever subjective unit of distress scale that you use, so whatever SUD scale that you use, whether that's 0 to 10 or 0 to 100, I really am a fan of keeping it simple, like zero to 10. Um, You know, you want to find that challenging but manageable range. You want to make sure that it's not too low because if it's too low, like a zero or a one or a two, it's possible that that person's not going to be engaged enough um, and that they might just get bored and not see or be able to witness the full extent of the treatment. You also obviously don't want to make the exposure assignment too high. So if the exposure assignment is too high, chances are the person is going to do rituals or just avoid it next time altogether or kind of get just a bad taste in their mouth for what exposure therapy is like. So ultimately, we want someone who's going through their first rounds of exposures 
We want them to feel a little bit anxious, but we also want them to have that really good corrective experience afterwards of, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. That wasn't nearly as bad as I thought that it was. That was, I can do this. I can keep doing that because they're going to continue to adhere to their treatment hopefully after that experience. You also as a therapist want to make sure that you're not confusing praise for reassurance. So I think this can get <clears throat> tricky sometimes, admittedly, even for me, right? And and anything can be a compulsion. You really truly have to do your own functional analysis of why am I doing this? Do I feel the urgent and anxiety-provoking need to continue doing this? Or am I just kind of doing it? I don't care one way or the other. Um, I think praise as a therapist is directed towards the person and the experience of kind of the work that they're putting in. It's not about the external world or the external environment or an item or an object. Um, so you're challenging yourself really nicely or I'm so proud of you. Those sound great versus this is just a picture or, um, you know, see, you don't seem sick to me, so on and so forth, right? Like, it's also, it can be tricky, but, you know, encourage them to praise themselves and you can certainly praise their abilities, their choices. You know, I'm here with you. Yep. I can tell that you're really anxious right now and you're, you're doing it. We're here. Um, that all sounds good, but we just want to make sure that we're not contributing to their reduction in anxiety in a way that would inhibit habituation or interfere with the inhibitory learning processes. Um, you know, I think it's it's okay to encourage people to think of their why, like before going into exposures, you know, why is it so important for you to do this? You know, that that sounds great. Let's go ahead and do it. Um, so really want to just make sure that we're not confusing praise for reassurance because praise is really important. We want to give them that positive reinforcement and whatever um, form kind of makes sense in that context, but we don't want to give reassurance. I think it's also really important, kind of last mistake here, um, it's important to discuss fear expectancies versus actual outcomes. So, um, you know, I think after the exposure and also before the exposure, I think before the exposure, it's useful to have that conversation of, you know, what is your OCD or anxiety saying is going to happen right now? What is your feared expectation? What is your fear telling you may happen? Um, so I may get sick or I may be uncomfortable and not be able to handle it. Um, you know, really, truly, whatever that fear is, and then go and do the exposure with no rituals, no distraction, no avoidance, no nothing, no reassurance or self-assurance, anything like that. And then when all is said and done and the dust is kind of settled, I would certainly want the therapist to come back and have a conversation about actual outcomes and comparing those actual outcomes to the fear expectancies of the past, right? So I see... You know, when you first went into this exposure, you said that you were so anxious that you weren't going to be able to tolerate it, right? That you were going to go into this room and you were going to get so anxious that you had a panic attack. You were pretty sure that that was going to happen. Um, you know, you went in despite all of that and you you sat through that. You did not run out of the room, didn't do any rituals. And what happened, Right. Hopefully the person is able to come to the understanding and do that before and after comparison of like, whoa, I didn't think that that would happen or I thought that this scary thing would happen and it didn't. So you really want to be able to have those discussions, not during the moment, because that would be distracting and that would probably contribute to the decrease in anxiety, which then interferes with the whole exposure process. But afterwards, like I said, when the dust settles, 
totally appropriate and encouraged to have those discussions about what you thought was going to happen before versus what actually happened. I think it just kind of solidifies everything in the brain. Um, and it's good to chat about that stuff. <clears throat> so uh, we're going to take a quick break and go over um, some of my favorite things in the whole wide world other than talking about exposure and response prevention um, and working with the OCD community. Take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about the common pitfalls in exposure and response prevention. I've often said that one of my favorite go-to self-care routines is to get my nails done. But if you're like me, then you just can't justify salon prices or the harshness that these bring to your nails. Olive in June allows you to get the salon quality manicures and pedicures at home. You can easily go up to seven days without chipping, you don't have to leave the house, and you can finally stop spending $35 or more every two weeks on getting them done. For $10 off your first order, Head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com and click on deals. Welcome back, you guys. We're going to get into discussing some common pitfalls in exposure and response prevention therapy for OCD. But first and foremost, I want to direct your um, attention to uh, this is going to be taken pretty much exactly from... Um, a research article, um, kind of one of the uh, pinpoints that I have. Uh, it's one of the best articles that we consistently, I think as a field, certainly come back to numerous times. Um, this is from an article titled Common Pitfalls and Exposure and Response Prevention for OCD. I will make sure to link uh, access to the article in my show notes so you guys can see the authors who are responsible for all of these uh, wonderful finds. But Essentially, one of the most common pitfalls um, or ways that ERP can go wrong is when therapists leave areas of OCD untreated. So this is, for example, somebody who has multiple different subtypes um, and, you know, you're working on the contamination OCD, but the person really doesn't want to work on their sexual uh, intrusive thoughts. So we really want to encourage therap therapists to be working with their clients on accepting that generic doubt of accepting kind of the core fear or core fears that really bind all of these subtypes together. Um, we don't want to just be working on the superficial manifestation of the OCD, which would be like the contamination or the sexual, you know, pedophilic thoughts or whatever. Um, I think when you do this, when you only work on one subtype, whether that's the therapist's position or whether that's the person's, um, per the person who has OCD, whether they just like don't want to go there, I only want to work on this, I don't want to work on these things. Um, the equivalent of that is kind of to me like putting out half of a fire, right? So, um, you know, what happens when you put out half a fire, the rest of it eventually kind of festers and it gets, uh, you know, more and more intense and it kind of comes back with a vengeance. So um, really important, again, to work on the generic doubt, not the contamination in specific, but the generic doubt that really truly underlies um, all of these different superficial manifestations. Um, I, talk, I talk a lot about this throughout on my podcast, um, lots of different episodes on kind of why the content of OCD, meaning the subtype, doesn't matter as much. Um, you know, people love subtypes and I think they're great for many reasons, but I think the difficult area is that the more we think those subtypes are important, the the less important we believe or, or treat the generic doubt, kind of what's actually at the root of it. 
um, what's at the root of OCD, and that's so important. So Dr. Reed Wilson also is one of my favorite um, kind of professionals in the area when it comes to that content in specific. So the whole idea that the content of the OCD doesn't matter. Um, so you can definitely look some of that up as well. Um, but another common pitfall in ERP is missing out on useful exposures. So when you only do imaginal exposures, I think people miss out on a lot of opportunities. So um, especially coming from a residential treatment background, right? So I'm used to working on exposures that are very functional and getting people to brush their teeth again, getting people to do laundry, doing eating exposures, um, really trying to get people to live their life again because they were just so debilitated. And so we would really only use imaginal exposures in the worst case scenario, like when we had no other opportunity to work with that fear and or when they had already done so many other exposures that the imaginal one was kind of the next sensible step. So I also have a pet peeve of when hierarchies are all like, write this triggering word or say this triggering word, write rape, write molest, say pedophile. Like there are so many other awesome exposures that are more real life and in the moment and applicable to their functioning on an everyday basis, like driving by a school hanging out with their nieces and nephews, right? And obviously you may need to do those like more surface level baby step types of things like imaginals or writing or saying certain trigger words to kind of prepare the person for the next bigger step, like driving, you know, by a school or hanging out with your niece or nephew. I totally get it. But on your hierarchies, guys, like this is my biggest pet peeve ever. You better have some really good, really functional stuff on there. People are coming to treatment for a reason, right? So their OCD is inflicting some power over their day. There are things that they do on a day-to-day -day basis from point A to point B that their life would be better if they didn't do it. So I would really encourage people as much as possible, use those imaginal exposures, liber you know, not so liberally try to use them um, only when you absolutely need to, um, especially with like the writing or saying words. Um, really, truly ask yourself like, this exposure that I'm asking them to do, do they actually have to do that in their everyday life? For the most part, the answer should be yes. Um, I also want to think one of the common pitfalls in ERP is encouraging or allowing the use of distraction. So we talked about this in a previous episode, why distraction is not okay for OCD, why it's not something that we would encourage when you're highly anxious or anxious at all. It's because distraction can be a replacement for other rituals. It reinforces that experience, that that experience that I'm going through is dangerous, that I need to get away, that I can't tolerate it, that this is an event somehow, this is significant somehow, this is a signal, it's not just noise. Um, so even when you react with distraction, you're still giving your brain the message very subtly and unconsciously that this is an event. And, and something needs to be done here. So we do not want to use or encourage uh, the use of distraction. I think obviously, as we've talked about, so many therapists give in to reassurance. So this is definitely in all of the training that I've done myself, but also in all of the interns and all of the postdocs that I've helped kind of build their practice and specialization throughout the years too. So many people who I've helped train and, and teach ERP too. This is typically the one thing that they say, like it, it takes them a while. Um, just really developing that awareness and mastery over resisting reassurance and knowing it is coming or that it came kind of in this non-obvious way and also pivoting, right? So 
I think one is, you know, just developing that mastery and that awareness over time, even of the subtle examples of reassurance. So reassurance is not always that like gift wrapped, here you go, very obvious question, like, am I going to get better? Um, Sometimes it's as subtle as facial expressions. Sometimes it's as simple, it can even be a statement, right? Like, wow, I hope I really do well today. They're maybe calling that out, right? Like that's a call out. They're hope they're that person may be potentially saying that in hopes that you'll say something reassuring in return. So it really requires you to understand all the different ways that fa- uh, that reassurance can come up, including even facial expressions. Um, I remember at, back at Rogers, they all had to all all the uh, residents there. They all had to kind of in the morning, they had to report what homework they did from the day before. And that was an anxiety provoking piece of the morning because you have to kind of report in front of your peers and say what you did and what you didn't do. Um, And for someone who struggled with like who I worked with, this person really struggled with perfectionism and fear of authority. And there was a time where this person did not do all of their exposures. Um, And so they said that, you know, instead of saying that they did this exposure, this exposure, they had to say and report in front of me and in front of their peers, I didn't get to all my exposures yesterday. And as I basically said, okay, and I moved on to the next person, this person freaked out, like completely full-blown panic attack. And it's because I just kept moving. I was, I did not give that person the reassurance in the moment, like that that's okay. No big deal. We'll talk about it later. Um, I also was just very like non-eventful in my facial expression and in my tone. Um, I think even if I would have said like, oh, okay, you know, that she would have maybe interpreted that like with my, my facial gestures and my expressions and my tone, she would have you know, interpreted that a certain way. So instead I was like, okay, just very, very non-eventful. And she, her, the OCD didn't like that, right? The OCD really had a hard time accepting that um, lack of reassurance that, you know, I wasn't mad or that that, you know, that was okay. Um, so just be, be on the lookout and really get to know your, your, your clients, really get to know them, get to know all the sneaky ways that this OCD ritual of reassurance can come out, get to know kind of what it is that they're seeking, um, and, and gain some confidence, you know, really pivoting and and getting that confidence and walking that tightrope, like we talked about previously, right? Like I'm, I'm here for you. And I know you're really anxious right now. I know you really want me to answer that question. I'm not going to answer that question. I'm not going to answer that question. Um, when it comes to reassurance, this is a really great time for you to have had that chance to build rapport. Um, because when you don't give people reassurance, they can kind of feel sad about that, right? Like they can kind of feel like you don't care or they might get the impression that maybe you're cold. Um, I just want this answer. I just want you to answer my question. But it's like, I know, I know right now it feels like you just want me to answer your question. And I know it feels like it would be so much easier if I just answered it, but I don't want to make the OCD stronger. I, I kind of, I'm curious, right? Like I'm curious how we proceed without you having the answer to that question. So, so let's just see. Let's just see what happens. Um, <clears throat> some other pit, pitfalls that can kind of take place are uh, treating the peripheral symptoms and not the core fear. So, um, and when we talk about the core fear, we're talking about kind of that deeper 
what's actually what actually they're afraid of and not just the superficial manifestation of the OCD. So you do this, you identify the core fear by using what we call the downward arrow technique. So you essentially will get the person to talk about what they're fearful of and then say a, a series of, well, then what? And then what? Like, what would be so bad about that? Um, and if you look up the downward arrow technique on just Google, you'll find a lot more information on it. But um, this is the perfect example of peripheral symptoms and not the core fear. So person I worked with was fearful of what it seemed like to be like semen and bodily fluids, fear of just being dirty, doing dirty things, having that fluid on his body. Um, I We got to having a discussion one day about sex with his wife. Um, come to find out that that wasn't an issue for him. No rituals there whatsoever. Didn't have to shower afterwards, whatever. So suddenly my therapist alarms went off. I was like, well, if the fear is of semen and of bodily fluids, you know, sex involves semen and bodily fluids, but there aren't any rituals there. So then I got to talking to this person about, well, what is it about sex that makes it okay? What is it about other instances of bodily fluids that make it not okay? And we got to having the discussion about how it's less about the, uh, bodily fluids. And it's more so about just feeling dirty, like sex is allowed. So that's okay. Sex with my wife is allowed. So that's fine. Um, and yeah, so then we worked on totally different things, right? We went more down the like working on, I'm a pervert path. Um, I'm dirty. I'm, I'm a jerk kind of path. Um, and that was more of like the core fear for him. So um, I think that's super, super helpful. You've got to work on those core fears. You have to go underneath uh, what the OCD is kind of superficially giving you. It's also really important to notice and address mental compulsions. So as we've talked about in previous podcasts, a lot of mental rituals can't be seen. So um, if you want a really good and thorough rundown on mental compulsions, I have several episodes on that um, pretty recently as well. So uh, go back to the episode list and find that, but mental compulsions are tricky for the person who experiences them and also for the therapist because you need to address them thoroughly and educate your person on how to resist them. Um, you can also, as a therapist, become aware of physical signs of mental ritualizing. So um, even in Rogers and residential, obviously you can't see someone ruminating in their heads or giving themselves self-assurance or um, you know struggling with a mental compulsion per se, but anytime that someone was freezing in conversation or taking a long time to respond, um, anytime someone was just kind of like sit sitting there not moving or like staring off into space, um, wasn't always indicative that they were mentally ritualizing, but a lot of the times it was. Um, so there might be some physical uh, giveaways as to, as to when someone might be struggling mentally and, and those things are really helpful as the therapist to be on the lookout for. Um, and then the last uh, pitfall here is not working with family members. So if you miss out working with family members or loved ones um, who are really close to the individual who has OCD, you're potentially missing out on a lot of important information. So missing information about uh, what their rituals are like, um, you know, in what ways they bring the family or loved ones into their ritualistic behaviors um, and other things that for all the best intentions, the person themselves is just not aware of, right? So how many times have all of us, whether you have OCD or not, been told of some mannerism that you have that you didn't even realize, right? So um, 
it's really important to get the loved ones feedback. And it's also important to make sure they have the education about accommodations, about not giving reassurance. So if you're doing all this work with the person and the person is doing all of their work as well, but they're not, you know, interacting with family members who are also responding differently, chances are, you know, you're going to be watering some weeds in that garden that you don't want to be watered. Um, so it's really helpful to bring in the family members, even if it's uncomfortable, um, even if it's not what the OCD wants whatsoever, it's really important uh, to bring in those loved ones so that they can know what's going on and so they can learn a new way of really just, you know, finding a new way to interact with the OCD. So um, last thing here before we move on, some harmful engagement responses uh, that the person can engage in. Um, this will be our last bit here before we call it a day. So these are just things that we don't want people to do, right? So these are not necessarily, you know, the first things that would come to mind as compulsions or very specific rituals per se, but they are <clears throat> things that certainly keep the OCD persistent, right? They're definitely the things that give the OCD a home. These are definitely things that you would want to try to not do. And so all these things are very subtle, very sneaky, but important to talk about nonetheless. So we want to make sure that people are not resisting or avoiding thoughts. So along the lines of thought stopping, right? We don't want people to resist certain thoughts and we don't want people to avoid certain thoughts. Um, we also want to try to rework the person's tendency of judging the thoughts as bad, gross, or perverted. So ideally, we want the person who has OCD to increase their willingness to have any type of thought and be open to all thoughts. So sounds really difficult at first uh, when you, you know, can't even imagine being okay with some of the thoughts that OCD gives you. Um, but eventually, yeah, we want to approach those thoughts non-judgmentally, that these thoughts are just like any other thought, and we can kind of diffuse from them at that point. Um, we also want to make sure that our clients are not hating their thoughts or wishing they'd go away. This really reinforces to the OCD that these experiences are dangerous, that these experiences are threatening, and again, that there is a signal here. It's not just noise. Um, but this is bad, 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 bad. We have to get rid of it. And unfortunately, as long as we have that attitude, there's going to be more of it. So um, we really find that when we welcome the OCD in and we kind of let go and we drop that rope of tug of war, it doesn't stick. It's, it's no longer a two-way argument. It's no longer a two-way conversation because we're no longer participating in it. Um, along those lines, we also want to make sure that our, our, our members are not wanting peace and wanting to be normal. Um, and of course, those are all things that are, we would understand why someone would want those things, right? And you can certainly educate that and um, validate that. But the more that someone kind of just persists with that attitude and with that line of thought, again, it, it reinforces that these things are bad in the first place. Also, again, as, as I've said numerous times before, we want to make sure that people are not distracting themselves, um, trying not to notice the OCD-related thoughts. I think that is dangerous as well. I'm just going to try to not notice any yellow Jeeps on my way to school today. You're probably going to notice a lot of them versus if you just kind of moved on, not caring one way or the other how many yellow Jeeps you saw. And then finally, obviously, we don't want anyone to do coping mechanisms when they are actively anxious. So that reroutes everything, it interrupts the habituation process, interrupts the 
uh, inhibitory learning process. So we really just want to make sure that, um, you know, everyone is just sitting with their thoughts, letting their anxiety be there. All that coping, especially when you are actively anxious, can be really detrimental in the long run. So um, hopefully that was helpful to you all. Three-part series. So that was a lot here. So um, my hope for you is that whether you're a person with OCD, hopefully you can you know, feel good about your therapy now and, and maybe look out for what you would like to have and have experience as a therapist. Um, and if you're a therapist, my hope is that you found this really helpful, that now you you know, have some tools that you can take back with you into your sessions. And, you know, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. So uh, next episode, maybe we'll talk about some things that can kind of strengthen or bolster your um, exposure and response prevention treatment. I referenced a lot of awesome uh, articles here, a lot of awesome references. Um, so I'll be sure, definitely want to make sure that you guys all check out my show notes. So my show notes are going to have um, some good references that I talked about here. Um, when it comes to the engagement responses too, I have a lot of good information on that. Um, and yeah, we will see you next time, you guys. In the meanwhile, keep doing all the hard things. For more information and resources, head to my website at www.jennaoverbaugh.com. From there, you can sign up for my email newsletter so you can make sure that you are the most up-to-date about upcoming resources, podcast episodes, blogs, challenges, and more. Also, check me out on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh and tune into some other episodes here while you're at it. As always, if you have a free minute, it would mean the world to me if you could please subscribe and rate this podcast. Subscriptions and ratings help me keep the podcast going and help me spread the word to other people who need these resources and they otherwise may not get them. With that said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. I really love creating these episodes for you. And until next time, keep doing all the hard things.